which was the prodigal son, which, as you know, has to do with the prodigal son and his father, and never so much as mentions a mother. And then it lands on Mother's Day. So the furthest stretch I can take on this one is he wasn't upset with his mother. Everything was good there. So uh, we'll go with that. The scripture is going to be out of Luke 15, 11 to 32. And it says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came to draw near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant and he said to them your brother has come and because he received him safe and sound your father has killed the fatted calf but he was angry and would not go in therefore his father came out and pleaded with him so he answered and said to him his father lo these many years i have been serving you i have never transgressed your commandment at any time and yet you never gave me a young goat that i may make merry with my friends but as soon as this son of yours come home you have devoured, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So, I want to open the sermon here with prayer also. So if you'll bow your heads, please. Father, I ask that you would use this message to go forward to reach those both in person here and online, those we'll view later. Father, we ask that you would guide this church as we move forward. Show us in our lives how this story would apply. And let us accept your guidance and follow it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to go verse by verse, as Joel usually does. And in the story, it's easy to see the roles of the prodigal son, God as the father. The problem is, is there's not one single word of repentance in the entire story. And yet we know that's exactly what it's about. And that's why there's not a word, because the entire thing's about it. So in verse 11, we see that he had two sons. It says a certain man had two sons. That in itself lays the outline for the parable. One is completely loyal, being the older, 
The younger is only referred to as the prodigal. In Old Testament and New Testament time, there was what's called a birthright. The birthright went to the eldest son, that being the completely loyal son. The other son would get what was left. Now in verse 12, it says the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Essentially in today's English, what that means is, Dad, pretend you're dead. I want my inheritance now. So instead of cutting it in half, that birthright means that he cut his inheritance in thirds. With the older getting two-thirds and the younger, the prodigal, getting one-third. Now, we, we have to understand that that one-third that he got was an immense sum, much like a trust fund we would refer to today. And what does he do with it? In verse 13, we see it says, And not many days thereafter he gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He took what essentially is long enough to pack after he got his stuff, and then he fled. He fled to a far-off country, taking everything that he had just gotten with a symbolization that he had no intentions to return. He's fleeing from his father and his brother. He's going to a far land. It means he didn't want to stay close. He wanted nothing to do with them. We see that today with people in the church. People are leaving in droves. Young people want nothing to do with it in vast majorities. The word prodigal is an extremely wide, deep, and broad term. It means unlimited extravagance. So in other words, he had a ton of money, and he was using it in order to make the world serve him through his riches. But it won't be long before he will end up serving the world. See, in verse 14 through 16, it says, But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and then he began to be in want. When problems come up and we have a ton of resources, we tend to just shuffle them off and keep doing whatever we want because it's no big deal. It's not causing us or costing us anything. But when we run out of all of our resources, when things start looking bleak, and then the famine comes upon us, we start to hit that panic button. Now we start to pray. We start to look around. We start to wonder. In verse 15, it says, He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He doesn't run to his parents. He doesn't return to where he knows. He stays where he wants to be. He's staying out there in the world, living this sinful life. He joins himself to the worldly people. He doesn't come back and ask his, his church people for help. He wants nothing to do with them still. And what does this man do? It says he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Anybody familiar with Old Testament or Jewish belief know that swine is an unclean animal. He is now feeding the unclean animal in a field because he used his possessions to, feel, to feed the unclean animal within and feed his sin. In verse 16, it, it shows his desperate state. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. The world doesn't care about you. The world cares about itself. It's unloving. It's barren. In this parable, the world cares about what makes them money. And in this, it's the swine. The unclean thing is what it cares about. It doesn't care about the, 
the sanctity of human life. This person could starve to death. There's no insurance, no lawyers, no workers' comp. If he passes away, all it costs the, that man who owns the swine is a walk to the nearest market to hire somebody else for what is essentially not enough to pay because he doesn't have enough to eat for his own food. But the swine are what he cares about. That's where he's making his money. And anybody who has lived in the world knows that the world will turn its back on you. It cares only about itself. It's, it's not going to care about you. As we continue in verse 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, that means he finally hit rock bottom enough that he was willing to look back at his father. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? The understanding that the world is going to let him starve to death has finally hit him. And the understanding that as the father, he not only takes care of his family, he takes care of those he has hired well and above and beyond what the world does. He gives them enough bread to spare. He doesn't just give them enough to get by. He's kind. He's giving. He gives them enough to spare. And then he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, when he left, he took the wide path. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and it did. There's only one way for him to get back and to restore his life, and that is the narrow path. Jesus is that narrow path to the Father. You have to follow it. There is no other way. When he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, that's where we truly see that he understands the gift of salvation. It's through grace and mercy, not through anything. He is not worthy to be called a son of God. He squandered everything. He's sinful. He's lived that, that worldly life. He can never again be righteous enough to call him his son. His only best hope is to ask to be a hired servant. So that's what he's going to come back and take care of. But repentance and restoration come in that order. You have to repent before you can be restored. Nobody's going to restore you because then generally we as human beings will not repent. We have no reason to. So we have to be humbled and brought low. It's at this point that again we realize the world sees us as worthless. Our Father sees us as priceless. Most of the time... And I'm standing here and I can see the crisis center from here. The crisis center has the hotline, the suicide hotline. When people hit rock bottom, they tend to look for a way out. And that way out, for, some, for most of the people who don't know Jesus, haven't grown up in the church, or have turned their back, is suicide. Suicide is a lie brought forth by the devil. They don't want to burden anybody with their pain, friends, family. They just want out. So they choose to die. However, Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. There's no point of return after that. Once you die, you become a corpse. Your body can become a corpse at any time. A corpse really has a hard time becoming a body again. So anybody who might come across this message and is thinking that, hold off. You have nothing to lose. Giving God a second chance, you have nothing to lose if you've already given everything up. So, we come back to our story here in verse 20 and 21, and what does he do? He finally takes that choice. I'm going to rise and go to my father. 
But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. His father, if if you read this real quickly, it says he waited until he came and bowed before him and asked, pleaded for him, and he said, you know what, I'll think about it and then I'll take you back. Except that's not what we read. That's what the world does. Maybe if you had an ununderstanding parents, they might have done that. But no, our Heavenly Father says he saw him a great way off. The wording in the Bible is he saw him as a speck on the horizon and knew that as his son who intended to come back to him. And he didn't wait. He had compassion on him. His compassion starts before the, he ever apologizes to him. His intent was there. He was coming. And he knew it. And he was going out to find him. And he didn't walk to him. He didn't wait. He took off at a run to meet his son. He wasn't going to wait for his son to reach him. He was coming to him. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. The image of this is more like a wrestler's lockup hold where he reaches around his neck and pulls him in tight. The other arm around his waist pulling him in close so he can never get away. It's no longer up to him. You are now mine. You don't get to go away again. I love you. You are in my arms. You are safe forever. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Some of us think we're good. If anybody believes they deserve heaven, you don't. If you think you're good, you're not. Good in the Bible is perfect. The rich young ruler is the story that comes to mind. He says, good teacher. He says, no one's good but God. Why do you call me good? Notice the rich young ruler still had his possessions. Jesus looks at him and says, Give all your possessions to the poor. Come and follow me. And this man weeps and walks away. He turns his back. He still had the ability to live his own life. It's only as he's leaving, Jesus says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to come to heaven. He wasn't to a point of repentance. He wasn't to a point of neediness enough. I don't know if maybe this is where that parable comes from. Him knowing that. However, verse 22 and 24 continue. After the request for return of the relationship, it says, But the father said to his servants, he doesn't say to the son, he says to the servants. His servants are the messengers, the angels. That's who serve the father in heaven. They do his bidding. He says, Bring out the best robe, not a good robe, not an okay robe, the best robe, and put it on him. We see in Revelation that Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, they get white robes. We as the church, the bride of Christ, we get fine white linen, clean and bright. We will be clothed in greatness. He then says, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. These are symbols in those times. The ring is a restoration of power, position. He's not hiring him back as a servant. He's coming back as a son. When you return to the Father, you don't have the choice to be a servant. You will do His will. You will serve God, but not as a servant. You will serve Him as a son. We are the sons of God. He doesn't accept any of us in a position less than that because of His love and because of Jesus Christ. Then He said He put sandals on His feet. Hired servants, that's one thing. But slaves of the day, they were barefoot giving him sandals, which show he did not even have shoes when he came back. Those sandals show that he's not a servant and he's not a slave. He's been restored to the sonship with his father. He says, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. 
Nothing about that is because of what the son did. Only because of his son's return. The fatted calf celebration has nothing to do with what the son did. Not his living, not his return in repentance. Only his return to the father. It's the father's ex... The father showing his love and his joy in the return of his son to his son. It has nothing to do with what his son did. says, And my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You remember elsewhere in the Bible it says, There is more joy in heaven, and the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents than over a righteous man that needs not to repent. We see that here. Many of his teachings are wrapped up in these parables. If we look, we look, match the Old Testament and the New Testament, things come alive. In verse 25 through 28, this is where it starts not to be so, so friendly for us church folk, if you will. It says, now his older son was in the field. The older son in this is representative of the church and the field. Anytime you see that in a parable, or something like that, you see the world. It's, a, it's a, a term meaning world when we talk about it like that. It says, And he came and drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing. He comes to see what's going on. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Once again, nothing in there says because your your brother is so good or... Anything like that. It's all because of what the father wanted. But the son, the older son, was angry and would not go in. And therefore his father himself had to come out and plead with him. I think it seems that the American church as a whole, the reason people are leaving is because we, we seem to care more about small points in doctrine between the churches than we do about saving the unsaved. We care more about letters that follow a church as to whether or not we support them. We care more about programs than people. We're being deceived in those ways. We will spend hours in meetings finding ways to fund programs to get butts in the pews, but we never fund programs to fix the pain in the butt of sin. And that's why they're empty. We should see our churches as forward operating bases. The area around them is the mission field, the area of operation. Instead, for some reason, we have built buildings like this, and they've become castles, intimidating to people, not letting people in, because they don't meet our standards. We don't meet our own standards. That's why we see the world as us versus them, saved versus unsaved, sometimes worthy and not. Even if we don't mean it, a lot of times that is how the church in America gives off that uppity feeling to others. But instead we need to look at being saved by grace. Grace has been said as meaning God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, you didn't earn it. It was given. Repentance is not the finish line. It's the starting line. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We didn't earn it. They didn't earn it. Our sin, 
And the sin of unbelievers is the exact same thing. It's still sin. We all know we're flawed. However, in the church, we seem to have this habit of trying to hide it. Why would we hide it? One word. Pride. Pride is the sin that brought down the highest angel, Lucifer, causing him to become Satan and the devil. Pride is the original sin. It is still the sin we carry today. Pride in, in our building. Pride in It's not our building. It's Christ's building. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. So what do we see? We see a bunch of Christians walking around. We'll ask for prayer, for healing. We'll ask for prayer for things that we can't hide. But those little things were like horses walking around in a pasture. Scared to death if we start limping, people might think we broke our leg. Come and shoot us and send us to the glue factory. That, in essence, in the American church is what the problem is. The purpose of the church is not that. The purpose of the church is to be the ER trauma room of the world. In that, Jesus is the doctor. He will fix any and all infirmities from sin. That is the purpose. That is what we need to start looking at. The purpose of the church is to be a fire. Jesus is the flame. The Holy Spirit is the air driving it, engulfing it. We are the wood thrown upon it. Once we catch that flame, we are to go out into the barren world of dry grass and ignite it. Enriching the soil, bringing forth new life, and then coming back together as a church to reignite that flame. Because if you stay away long enough from the church, you just become a smoking heap. You have to come back to the fire to remain on fire. Now I see some, some younger children here, so some of you may have never been camping. What that means is the church is the fast charger to your cell phone, so your LED light will continue so you can be the bright light of the world. Now that they've caught up with the rest of us, we will continue. To the unbeliever, do not look to the church or the people for your salvation. You need to look to Christ. Far too many said, oh, I've been scorned by the church. These people turned their back on me. Oh, this person did this. This person claimed to be a Christian. They upset me. We're all sinners. We're all the same. We're no better than you. I ask you to look to Christ. Christ alone. We will never meet that standard. Sin will remain in our midst until we are raptured or die. We need to look to Christ as the unbeliever. That's then when you enter the church and realize everybody's still the same. We will guide you. We will lead you. If you're here in this area and you want to come to Westbrook Park Church, we will help you. Give us a call. If you're somewhere else, find a church there. The churches are not about filling the pews, but about reaching the unsaved. We don't care which one you go to, just find one that preaches the actual word, not the feel-good gospel. To our church, we have spoken many times since the new board mentality had come in about being new, reaching the unsaved, making that our mission. We got evicted from our church, Essentially, we've been in a parking lot for a year. I don't know if maybe that's an answer to prayer that God gave us. We all said, show us how to use our building. Show us what we should do. And he said, well, it's not for you. Get out. Find others to fill it with. Those that don't already come. Our programming, it's good. It serves us well. But it can also become an idol. We need to take that idol Find a way to mold it into the ER trauma room of the world. So in these remaining time that we have stuck out here in a parking lot, 
where I get to freeze my butt off because Joel seems to always pick foul weather to tell me to come preach. We need to decide what we're going to do programming-wise when we here at Westbrook Park Church finally get to go back in the building. And we need to decide, are we going to use it for us or are we going to use it for them? If we use it for those who aren't here yet, we will have to hire policemen, not for safety or security, but directing traffic and to decide who is going to take reservations to get in. Because the hurting of the world is real. 2020 showed us people are hurting even more. Suicide rates went through the roof because people felt separation. It's not up to the board to figure out the programming. It's up to us as the body. We push papers. That's been made abundantly clear to us by Joel. And so I want to reach that out to you so you don't hear it just from him. If you want to start a children's ministry, start one. Come to us. We'll find a way to fund it. You want to start something that will reach the people who aren't here yet? We will find a way to fund it. God will give us that. That is our mission. We need to find those who are the prodigal sons who are gone and are looking to return and have that place ready for them when they do. The fatted calf has to be here. It has to be ready. We have to be ready to make merry. We can't turn our backs on anyone. And if we hold ourselves up in a building, that's exactly what we're doing. We can play church or we can be the church. That choice is ours. And if we make that choice to finally be the church for Canton, Christ for Canton, we will fill this building, we will fill this lot. And it won't be to our pride. It won't be to our glory. It will have nothing to do with us. It will be because we finally started looking beyond ourselves to Christ where we should have been looking all along. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He is that narrow path. No matter what we've done, how bad we've made it, God is so knowing, so loving, and so overly powerful that he can take everything from the brink of destruction, including people's lives, and turn it around into absolutely anything. Now, that's not the prosperity gospel. I'm not telling you... That if you walk into this building or you buy Miracle Spring Water at 3 in the morning, your house is going to get paid off. That's a lie. The promises of Jesus, some of them do apply to this life, but far reaching beyond that, most of them apply to the next life. And that's where we have to look. This is temporary. Jesus himself tells us, all the gifts I have laid up for you are treasures in heaven. I will bless you here on this earth. I will do things. Why? To see how you use it. So that when I come and I find my church, he says literally, will I find faith on the earth? I don't know if that's a question or statement. We'll have to look into that. But we need to be ready to restore those people. When they walk up, it doesn't matter what they walk up in, what they drive up in. It only matters that they're here. We need to do a better job of showing that to people. We have new people coming, and that is awesome. We are doing something right. The changes are being made. I can tell you personally from being in the meetings, those conversations are more geared towards how can we reach the unreached than how can we keep our programs. We're finally getting there. Joel is leading us that way. And you're going to hear probably more about that in that meeting I announced at the beginning. In closing, I would like to thank everybody for staying in the parking lot, despite what 
what may have not been the most uplifting message, but I see it as a guiding principle, a reminder of where we are, where we're going. We are going forward. We are moving somewhere great. God has purposes for us and this church, and they're going to be far better than where we came from. To anyone watching who doesn't know Christ, that is your future if you so choose it. Pick it up. He loves you more than anything. He wants more for you than you want for yourself. Anybody who loves you more than you love yourself would never seek your destruction, does not want to send you to hell. But he is righteous. And so if you choose to reject that, you choose hell itself. Repent, return, come to the Father, come to the Son. Jesus came, he lived, he lived a perfect life. One we can't live, so stop looking at us for that. And I'm speaking to the unbeliever now. He lived a perfect life. We won't. He did that so you don't have to. He then died a horrendous death. He had the only time of separation from the Father so that we will never, ever have to understand what that was like. He paid for it. He accept, Please accept it. And it doesn't matter the words you pray. It doesn't matter if you raise your hands or if you walk forward at some crusade. It only matters what the intent of your heart is when you ask Jesus to be your Savior. It's at that point that He will be your Savior. Your sins will be washed clean. And you will be saved for all of eternity, regardless of what you did. There's nothing you can do. And if you think there is, then you're saying your sin is more powerful than Jesus. That in itself is blasphemy. There is nothing you could have done, thought, or intended to do that can overpower the blood of Jesus. For any of us who are sliding backwards, we need to dig into the Word of God to find out what He wants us to do. When we dig into the Word of God and we move forward, that's where He will show us where our programs are, where we need to be as a church. This is just where we come together. This is not where we grow. We grow in our daily meditation with the Father and reading. Don't let anybody fool you. Church is not the gas station. It's just where we ignite the fuel. It's the engine. So with that, I'd like to bow, bow our heads in prayer. Father, I ask you that this day we go forward, that your will for us, no matter where we are, and in our lives, you'd make that manifest to us. You have us in mind. You have plans for us. You knew those plans before you ever started creation. We ask that you would give us the will and the courage to stand up and seize upon that which you would have us do, whether that's popular or not. We ask that you would put us behind ourselves, that we would go forward and do your will, to seek those that you want saved. We know in Esther, we have been raised for such a time as this. And if we do not seek that time and we do not go forth, you will raise another, for it will be, be done, but we will lose that prize which you have given us, set aside for us in heaven. Father, let not this church nor this people lose their prizes. Let us stand up. Let us move forward. Ignite our hearts and let us come together as never before. Let us move forward in a way that cannot be stopped because we are following you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll go to our last song.